Welcome. You're listening to the podcast Outlander Soul, searching for the soul of Outlander. With me, Reverend Terry Menifee Gow. And me, Dr. Jamie Reeves. As always, be aware, there are spoilers ahead. So we're back with episode six of season two, where we are talking about the Bible in Outlander. Yep. Yeah. Last episode, we looked specifically at the Adam and Eve text in Genesis and how we see that and how it's in the Outlander text repeatedly. Yeah. How um, Jamie and Claire are compared with Adam and Eve. And, and we're, we were kind of using that framework to kind of pull out some of the biblical references, whether or not they were actually specifically quotes from the Bible, but, you know, kind of showing parallels between Jamie and Claire as Adam and Eve, as these special people. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then showing how that throughout the books, they seem to consistently being compared to them and being, and being referred to Adam and Eve. So Lally Brock and then Fraser's Ridge as Eden, as New World, as Eden. We kind of talked about that too. So yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah. So a further further development of that theme is looking at the parallels between Outlander and Song of Solomon. So for those who may not be aware, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Song of Solomon. It, it was. Was the f- last book, from what I understand, that was canonized in the in the Hebrew Bible? Was as far it as really? Our, I think so. Now, oh gosh, there will be some biblical scholar who see you know hears this and goes, "Oh my God, what is she talking about?" I do think. <laughs> I mean, there's there's obviously the apocryphal texts that could you know like Tobit and Sirach and some of those others that you know are technically the um, Hebrew Bible time period or Old Testament time period, but just weren't canonized. But yeah, I want to say Song of Solomon was either the last one or the one that everybody wanted to take out. Maybe that's, oh gosh, now I don't know what I'm talking about. I feel horrible. <laughs> but anyway, there's lots of debate about Song of Solomon. <laughs> and, and, there's, and there's good reason. So for those in the Baptist tradition, it is very possible that either you were just gently not shown the book of Song of Solomon. Or not even gently. It's just never mentioned, never talked about. Never Da-da-da, mentioned, never talked it about. It's not here. And, and I know of people who were raised in the evangelical tradition who they were told they weren't allowed to read it until they were 21. The ba- they, banned book yeah, within your own Bible. Yeah. yeah, so the canon within the canon. This one was left out. And let me just say... <laughs> It is racy. <laughs> it is some well, sexy and that's stuff. Of, yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's why. So I, I had a look real quick. And the uh, Songs of Sol- or Song of Solomon or the Canticles, sometimes they're called, or just songs, were canonized within the Jewish tradition in the second century CE. So, you know, long after Jesus came and went. The controversy around around the book was basically that literally it is about love and sexual longing between a man and a woman doesn't ever mention god and is is not interested really in law or you know all the other prophecy or any of the other things that basically the rest of the texts say and so and it's not a narrative you know it's poetry and so yeah there were a lot of people who thought this doesn't deserve to be called scripture and of course the the christian canon doesn't really happen until the fourth century the way that kind of worked is they spent a lot of time arguing about what was going to be in the new testament what we christians called the new testament and then the Mm -hmm. jewish scriptures which the christians generally call the old testament they just kind of took everything that was canonized by the the jewish tradition everything that Mm -hmm. and, and they just adopted that as part of what we know now is the Bible. Most of the arguments in the Council of Nicaea and the rest of it had to do with the New Testament and the letters and the Gospels. You know, you've, you've heard of like the Gospel of Thomas and lots and lots of other letters that were left out, uh, letters of Paul or Pseudo-Paul or Deuteropaul or, you know, any, any of those mm-hmm. other letters. When, when you talk about the canon and the choice, somebody actually, people actually sat down and made the choice of what you are reading now as your sacred text. And this yep. one was, this one doesn't come until much, much later. 
No. In the tradition of reading songs within the Christian tradition, so Origen is probably one of the first ones, and he was, I think he died 253, so not long so, after this, after songs had been canonized. So, um, so Origen is a person. Yeah, Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N. So he was one of the first ones who interpreted songs as God's love for God's people as opposed to a man and woman, reading it allegorically, basically. And that was Origen's big thing. Everything was allegory. He did not believe in any kind of literal interpretation of scripture at all. But also, so, you know, beginning with Origen, but over the centuries within the Christian tradition, uh, the allegorical side of things continued to develop and move as uh, the emphasis becoming about the depiction of love between Christ and the church. So not really now God yeah. and God's people, but Christ and the church. So they and totally then, sanitize it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. In 12th century, also sort of understanding the bride as Virgin Mary. Yeah. And so seeing seeing her as the female character in songs as Well, as and if you read Mary. songs, then you'll know that if the bride is the Virgin Mary, let me just say, she's not a virgin by the end of the book. No, no, no she's not at all. <laughs> so, yeah, I think the point is, is kind of the similar point that we raised in some of the early episodes when we were talking about romance and theology, is that the church has really done everything it can to deny, to pretend, to la 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 la, we're not listening. Um, (laughs) When it comes to to sex, femininity, pleasure, any of that kind of stuff, that there's just, they just aren't interested and will actively obfuscate and make things less accessible or just pretend it's not there. We don't see it. I grew up with that understanding of it as well. Mm-hmm. I I think I've mentioned this in another episode. I remember Which, that the, it's the understanding that it's Christ and the church. Yeah, that it's that it was Christ and the church, mm-hmm. and that I was like, why is this all this love poetry in here? And mm-hmm. you know, we're not even mentioning Christ loves you so much, Terry. Yeah, <laughs> God loves me so much. He thinks that I've got beautiful twin breasts like yeah, deer. Like it, it gazelles. Was, you know, it's very very mm-hmm. strange. And mm-hmm. I I was in I was in England when I first read it through Mm. I I think I've mentioned this in another episode because I never really read it through in in all of the bible classes that I took in my freaky school that I went to that was all fundamentalist evangelical and I memorized all my bible stuff the Mm. only thing we ever really memorized was um his banner over me is love which is a song (laughs) and still um, the imagery yeah (laughs) the banner over Over you is love yes Um, and 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 that was that's a song yeah. that we sang at vacation Bible school, mm-hmm. and that's from Song of Solomon. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, love is stronger than death, stronger than the grave. You will hear that a lot in weddings. That understanding of what Song of Solomon. But the rest of it, you've got choruses of women calling out to the to the woman as she's going to see her man for a love tryst. It's a beautiful piece, and so we didn't get any of that whenever I was at Warwick Christian mm-hmm. Day School. We, yeah. we not, none of that. And I was in England when I was 16 and was doing some work with the church there, actually. And I was sitting at this meeting where we were doing a meet and greet, and I was bored out of my mind. Somebody was droning on about something, and I all that I had was a Bible. never happens in church meetings ever, does it? Yeah, I, you know, and I had, I had read the Bible through before, but I don't think I'd ever really truly understood this. And I can mm-hmm. remember sitting in that meeting and reading Song of Solomon, and getting really warm. <laughs> yeah. I was like, yeah. whoa, this is... Because reading it when you're 12 is a whole lot different than reading it when you're 16. Yeah. And you have I'm a sudden... I'm surprised that you read it when you were 12. Well, so... You read the Bible through when you were 12. My goodness. Yeah, you were yeah, super I... holy. Yes, that's me. Super holy Terry. That's my that's my superpower. <laughs> no, it, it, was, it was the church school that I was at was very strict and they wanted us to do a lot of that and so I did a lot of that I can tell you that it was edifying to a certain degree and to a certain degree it was just kind of magical hope that life would be better for you if you did this but Mm -hmm. I, I know my bible and I'm grateful for them for that but reading song of Solomon sitting in England in a group of old women was really really interesting (laughs) while I was getting hot and bothered I was like damn this stuff is good so um 
So, so, so what you, what we say right now is, if you've never read it, you really should. You really got to get that Bible out. Get that Bible out, dust it off, and, and read it through. And read it through as a book of poetry rather mm-hmm. than some book of the Bible. Because somebody somebody out there chose to put this in the Jewish canon. Some, some group believed that this was informative enough with our relationship with each other and with God. Mm-hmm. that it should be here. And it really yep. is somewhat foundational to our understanding of romantic theology, of this it idea is, yeah. that we mm-hmm. that we meet God in our relationships with each other, and especially we experience God in our, our sexual and intimate relationships with each other. And maybe even, too, it's worth saying, I think, that our relationships with each other are of intrinsic value themselves. That maybe... I mean, you, God might be part of that, but even if God weren't, it's still a holy thing. It's, it's still, still valuable and validated. It's still worth doing, and it's still yeah. something worth writing text about, sacred And calling text it holy. About. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, the I, other thing I think probably we also need to say, particularly given the episodes we've done around sexual violence in Outlander, is that there are instances of sexual violence in Song of Songs too. The yeah. the woman who is searching for her lover, she's looking for him everywhere, is accosted and abused and assaulted. And so when it comes to to this conversation around love and belonging and intimacy that the songs is also perhaps I, I I don't know I mean I would need to do a bit more research on it but perhaps in a model or being able to look at it as being in relationship with someone even if you've experienced this that there's mm. still love and there's still survival and there's still you can still go beyond despite or even though that might have happened to you. So it, I don't know. I, I just think I feel like we need to acknowledge that that's in that text too. Just in yeah. case you are expecting to go and read it and it all be, you know, this love flowery sort of romantic stuff. That there is there is a hard edge to it too. You so. also don't see a lot of relationships, biblical relationships, that no, have yeah. this kind of level of passion and love for you. You, you see a, a bit with, just a bit with David and mm. Abigail. You see just a teensy, teensy bit there. Those stories are so tainted by power and by who's right. in control and by, yeah, what you're going to get out of it. Yep. Though, yep. that whereas Songs is an anonymous man and an anonymous woman, one is not a ruler, one is not a, I mean, obviously, you know, they're a gendered things that are happening there in the sense of the man probably has more power just because he's man but at the same time time yeah yeah there is an equality in songs that we don't see anywhere else it's somewhat subversive to the other relationships we see yeah so you know you you see the relationship with you know poor jose and gomer and um and poor gomer you know and poor gomer poor gomer Poor Jose and Gomer uh, collectively. Um, so you, you you see the relationships with David and his thousands of wives and concubines. You see the relationships mm-hmm. between the women in the tra and the desperation some of them have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even with Ruth and Boaz, there really isn't a sense of of passion. No. There's a sense of responsibility. It's convenience and survival and responsibility and duty yeah. more so than... More so than anything than, else. Than your, you know, your breasts are like gazelles in the mountains or whatever. <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. She's not describing yeah. his legs as, as yes, the your legs cedars are like of Lebanon. Lebanon. <laughs> yeah. I love that the Song of Solomon is somewhat subversive in the, in the sense that it, it depicts true passion and desire and pleasure in each other and that somebody chose to put it next to these other relationships that we see in scripture but is it isn't that even even saying that's subversive then implies that <laughs> that our faith and our spirituality can't have a sexual edge to it. I completely believe that Song of Solomon is, is subversive in that way, but but to name it subversive then assumes that that's not possible. Do you know well, what I mean? Okay, it is. So it so hasn't let's... been talked about heretofore. You know, like but but yeah. I think what we're saying is that, of course, obviously it is right? Mm -hmm. But the belief is, and there has been a pervasive belief that to be godly, to be a godly woman, you think of, you think of Proverbs 31, there's nothing 
nothing in Providence. And that was just, you know, we're, we're recording this ahead of time. Last week, <laughs> that was the lectionary text for the Episcopal right. tradition. And so <laughs> the, the, the perfect woman, the perfect wife, there's nothing in there about passion. There's no, nothing in there about that. Her value is far above rubies because she saves money and she takes care of her household and because right. she and gets up early and works hard. Practical things, and, right? Um, I think you've got a per- pervasive belief that as females and as as men and women in relationship, or you know, same sex relationships as well, same gendered mm-hmm. relationships, as mm-hmm. well as that the higher love. Again, we get into a hierarchy of love. Mm-hmm. The higher love is this more platonic kind of love this more enduring thing that doesn't have passion and sex attached to it so i think we're constantly having to subvert that narrative and so while it is not true which permits us to subvert it i think there's still Mm -hmm. a pervasive belief that that is what is true does that make sense yeah yeah totally totally it makes sense but i just think it's funny that even even by calling it subversive we're almost kind of buying into that myth um yeah, so talking about songs, and then the last episode we spent time on the Adam and Eve narrative. And I think maybe what's what's important is um, to kind of begin with kind of where they converge and where they, they diverge. We'll put the link on the show notes, but there's a scholar here in the UK. Her name's Heather Walton, and she mm-hmm. wrote an article called Theology of Desire that was in a book called Theology and Sexuality. And her work's fantastic, and she does a lot of stuff around fiction as sacred text as well. But what she writes is that the really subversive thing about Song of Solomon is that it reflects the Eden story, but it's the mirror image of Genesis, of the Genesis narrative. So it turns and it twists that fable or that, that, that story of Genesis and stands next to it presenting a powerful challenge in the way that through the Eden tradition we have interpreted or misinterpreted the he- human condition. So basically kind of how we've talked about Jamie and Claire in the last episode as being sort of repeatedly referred to as, a, as this Adam and Eve archetype uh, who are archetypes in and of themselves, that they, both Jamie and Claire, and in songs, are completely subverting that story by being in love with each other. So Adam and Eve weren't presented as being in love with each other. They're not presented in Genesis as having that kind of relationship. Of course, they have children, but, you know, how they figure all that out is, you know, isn't talked about in Genesis. (laughs) But it's more about... It's more about survival. It's about propagation of the species. It's about, you know, humanity going forth and multiplying as opposed to love and honor and and take care of each other. It's about survival. Yeah. 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 I yeah. mean, go forth and multiply is the, is the command that God gives them, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I just had this mental image of Adam. So God, how do I do that? Wasn't that, you know... <laughs> You ate the tree. Figure it out. <laughs> oh, yeah. Talk oh, to Eve. She'll give you some yeah. pointers. Eve, Eve will know. Eve will know. Um, and the garden is both destroyed by the context that around that's around them, and but also maintained by their love and their commitment in the song. So even though, and, and Jamie and Claire too, so you've got this situation where paradise is lost. Paradise has been destroyed. The woman in songs is looking for her lover everywhere she goes. She can't find him. So paradise has, has, has ceased at some point in songs. And then, but then is regained when, when she finds him again. And, right. and it's the same thing with Jamie and Claire, that when they're together, all is right with the world, even if chaos is swirling around them. But when they're separated, it's a feeling of being cast out or banished and seclusion and, and intense loneliness. And so I, there's, this, there's, I think, a really distinct parallel where both Jamie and Claire are Adam and Eve, but Jamie and Claire are also the lovers in Song of Solomon. Yeah, I mean, and they, they subvert relationships around them too. So, mm. you know, that a lot of Song of Solomon or, or good chunks of Song of Solomon are them describing each other's bodies or even yeah. describing their, their own bodies. And yeah. we, we see actually a lot of this in Diana's writing, particularly in The Wedding Night. I just finished reading that one again last night. The Wedding Night where she says, take off your shirt. I want to look at you. Mm-hmm. Reads very much like Song of Solomon. Exactly. She describes his body. Not quite so poetic, you know. She doesn't 
she doesn't necessarily refer to parts it, of his anatomy as you know and <laughs> using sort of metaphor and simile in that way but but um but yeah she yeah. does she describes his chest his shoulders his legs and takes pleasure in them and then he asks mm. her to do the same and and it doesn't stop after that as you're going through you see other relationships so you, you don't see this so much with Jenny and Ian's relationship. Though it must be, because they've got how many kids? Yeah, they, they continually have children. They're just private about it. They don't yeah. tell anybody else. So when Marsley comes to Claire and says, I want what you have with Da. I want what you have with Jamie. I don't mm-hmm. want it to be like it was between my mom, Leary, and Jamie. Mm-hmm. I, you seem to take pleasure in this, and I want that too. And she wants that with Fergus. Yeah, so yeah. this is in Voyager prior to the to the wedding to yeah the, she and fergus getting married yeah so and, yeah and and then later in the books when you've got is it rachel and some of the other women who are getting married mm. in the last book when they get married to ian and they're in the army camp and it's the it's the three or four women that are in the tent talking yep. about yeah about pleasure yeah, talking about sex yeah, yeah. <laughs> talking about yeah. how this is this is actually a good thing. And it rather than shrinking from the touch, which is what happens with Leary and Jamie, shrinking from his touch, which he, he actually describes, it becomes subversive to the relationships around them. Much mm-hmm. like, you know, Song of Solomon is subversive to the relationships around it in our biblical text. You get this sense that, you know, what, what you're reading in Song of Solomon is really kind of the passion that you get from Claire and Jamie and that that's also unusual for its day. Yeah, for, for Jamie to say, is this usual? Yeah, yeah. What, what it is between us. Yeah. Yeah. And Claire says, you know, I, I don't really know, but I don't think so. Yeah. I think this is exceptional in some way. Yeah. I, Heather Walton, um, she uses the phrase desire as subversive. And, and like when we did the episodes around romance uh, theology, that we were talking about romance as being subversive literature too, that it's about women's desires and pleasures, and in particular in a context where women's desires and pleasures are not considered to be legitimate, so given the equal treatment, you know, all the stuff around feminine versus male gaze, yeah. you know, all of that kind of stuff. To actually give it the credit that it's due, to take it seriously is a subversive act. And so, you know, we said in, in those episodes that Outlander is subversive because... It does take that seriously because Claire is in control of her sexuality. She's the one who has the knowledge and the expertise in the situation and takes care of herself uh, in that way. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. That's good. You know, Walton also, she talks about desire being subversive and asks why. Why is it subversive? And so she says, she talks about, this is her quote, she says, find a book in the Bible that mentions God only in passing might be regarded as a subversive thing in and of itself. So Songs is one of those, and Esther is the other. So the debates about whether or not Songs and Esther would be included were partially because they don't talk about God. Walton says, It's interesting that this only happens in the two books where women play the major roles. Songs Mm -hmm. and Esther. Mm -hmm. And these are the only... I mean, there were debates about other books too, but as far as serious debates... Esther and songs are the two biggest ones. Oh my gosh, they have female characters. I think that's interesting. <laughs> and subversive, yay. And subversive, yeah. Yeah. Give me subversive any day. So some parallels between Song of Solomon and Outlander. So Walton says in the same article that you were quoting earlier that the garden is open. In the songs, there there is no expulsion. The garden is always there. And there's mm-hmm. no curse. There's no constraint. There's no taint. There's no shame. The mm-hmm. nakedness is not covered, although neither is unaware. They're, they're very aware of each other, obviously. Yeah, so it's not a drunken nakedness. So like the story of Noah where he's, he's drunk and uncovered and there's that whole story that... They are naked and they are aware and they are unashamed. Right. And the fall is not our inevitable ancient memory. I love that Mm. line. It's not Mm -hmm. inevitable. You know, the fall into matter, which, you know, would have been a platonic understanding of what's going on. The men falling into the women and recreating matter over and over and over again um, so that we're caught in an endless loop. This is actually not that. This is, this is, we know each other, we see each other. We have gone past the time where we have lost our innocence that's gone mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. it's the time that we we use our knowledge 
And I, I, mm-hmm. I love that. So Jamie and Claire have never been ashamed with each other. No, there's except a certain once. timidity when they <laughs> when they came back after their, you know, that, those 20 years when they got back together in Voyager. Well, and then there was the time after Louis. She is somewhat mm-hmm. shy about her relationship with Jamie there. And he, he knows why. It's because she's mm-hmm. she's had to sleep with Louis to free him. And she mm-hmm. has not been honest with him. Mm-hmm. But but the other times with each other, they've been they've been pretty open about and been pretty comfortable with each other's bodies. And actually, that's that was mm-hmm. part of the the wedding scene was, you know, it, maybe it's easier if we touch each other. I, I, maybe we'll yeah. find this easier if if I we can talk if we touch each other. Yeah, I mean, I'm also thinking probably in the first books just after. Well, after he's been raped and so while they're at the abbey and in the cave. But there's there's a constraint, I think. But as constrained maybe by social convention or maybe by shyness or maybe about just in relation to the trauma that either of them have experienced at yeah. their particular times. But not, no shame. No. I, I, even between, or, you know, after Jamie's rape, I don't. I don't know that there was shame in the sense of between him and Claire. It was shame in his experience with Blackjack, but not with Claire. No, no. He, he didn't want to taint Claire with that, I think. Yeah. I think yeah. He, he, he felt like he was not worthy or was mm-hmm. not worth anything anymore for her. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know that it was it was shame to be with her. I think it was just shame of what happened with, and it, with yeah. the rape, which yeah. is completely understandable. Understand. Yeah. 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 But too, I think just kind of shame in the sense of despite social convention, they they found ways to be together. So kind of, you know, in the woods, like we talked about before. Or on the ship. Um, they found some places on down the ship. The ship. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. In the quiet, under blankets, hurried before someone else comes along. You know, just kind of no shame in knowing that, yeah. That, that, that needs that, to happen. Yeah, he has a desire. She does mm-hmm. too. We talked about this. We we're talking about Jamie's spirituality a few episodes ago. And he was out praying in the woods while Claire was helping to deliver a baby. And when she leaves that, the first thing she does is she comes to him and says, I need you. Yeah. We, we, we didn't really get into that part of it. But he, he's no, had this prayer. We've had, he's had this moment. And she comes and she's like, no, I, I need you. And we need to do this like now. <laughs> we knew we mm-hmm. I this was a hard delivery and we need to do this and so mm-hmm. it, it it wasn't there was no shame in it it was I need you no. and they go straight to the barn and and make it happen that particular mm-hmm. story is told from Jamie's point of view and so he he's like you know we could have gotten on with it but he's he's like no she really needs me and I'm gonna make sure yeah. <laughs> that she gets every ounce of pleasure out of this that I can give her yeah <laughs> which is which is just so dreamy <laughs> I have to so say great. I'm thinking about the loss of innocence stuff that, you know, kind of we've talked about before. And and so we've talked about this kind of, there's a lot of Outlander around the losing of innocence, around paradise being lost. And certainly, you know, Jamie losing his virginity is, you know, part of it if we're talking about it in kind of sexual terms. But Claire also, she sort of loses her balance in the fall through the stones, through Jamie's experience of rape, through her own experience of rape later on, her struggle to bring Jamie back after that. And I'm just thinking about the repeated ways in which they do that for each other. When, you know, when Claire says, take me home, um, the times in which, you know, like the example you just gave, it's this innocence lost and then innocence regained in their connection with each other as they save each other repeatedly over and over and over again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, Jamie is, he's a virgin at the beginning of, of the story. Mm. He loses his virginity to Claire and sex is a wonderful, amazing, amazing, fabulous. Oh my God thing for him. Um, <laughs> un, until blackjack. And then yeah. it's not, he loses mm-hmm. that until Claire helps him find it again. Mm-hmm. And I think the same thing goes for when Claire is raped as well. Because that's the first thing he reaches for. After he finds her and finds her safe and after she's well enough, he's like, mm-hmm. we got to do this thing. Mm-hmm. I'm bringing you back. We're not losing mm-hmm. this between us. I mean, there's the practical thing of, you know, she might be pregnant and they, that's you know, that. having seen what, what Brianna and Roger have had to go through, it's let's let's at least make the opportunity to think that this might be our child if if you are pregnant. But yeah, also too, it's about reconnecting and saying, Let's not allow this to become a bigger thing than 
Yeah. I mean, she did it for him and he comes back and does Mm -hmm. it for her. But I'm also thinking about, so, you know, we've kind of already made mention, but the Song of Solomon, there's this theme. So they're together. The woman explains and and describes the body of her lover. Her lover describes her body. And then there's a point in which they are separated. And so she goes and she looks for him and she can't find him. Yeah. And the parallels, I think, around Claire's search for Jamie before Wentworth, her search for him in Voyager. So we're seeing it. And in, in, in songs, it's from the female character's experience. We yeah. never see the male character looking around for her. It's always her looking for him. And that's the same way that we see it in, in Outlander, too, is that Claire is sort of constantly searching for Jamie, right? Yeah, I, I think there's one... I think that it's at least in... At least in each book, there's some kind of search for Jamie. So, I mean, so so you, so in Dragonfly and Amber, she has to <laughs> just imagining where's Waldo, where's Jamie, <laughs> like Claire in red and white striped jumper and big glasses, looking all over. Well, he does have that hair, and he does stand above tall, above men. It's kind of easy to find him if you do. But you know, so she she's looking for him in Dragonfly and Amber. You know, after Preston Pans, after she's she's looking for Jamie. She's looking for him in Voyager. Obviously, that's why it's called Voyager. She also looks for him in Drums of Autumn. Whenever mm-hmm. he goes out and he doesn't return. So she goes yeah. and she finds him nearly frozen to death and saves him in that way. Oh, that's way. right. When he had the back, back yeah. spasm. <laughs> yeah, he has the back spasm and he can't move. As, as all of us in, in middle age. <laughs> it's, it's not just my back anymore. It's my knees and ankles no, too. No, no, but no, no. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, and, and it goes on and on. She's always looking for him. There's always some place where she's, she's lost him and she looks for him. And I think that that's... A, a constant motif we see it in a lot of romance novels and traditional romance mm-hmm. novels where it's the woman who is off somewhere and the hero goes to look for her and we i mean we do get that in outlander too so jamie oh, starts course. for claire's after she's been kidnapped and also when she's been accused of malva's murder he follows follows after her at, at cranes mirror and he he comes yeah. and rescues yeah. they rescue each other quite often yeah, but they do. They but do. you don't see that as often in like traditional romance novels no but you don't see the woman's pursuit of the man as much no in this text and you know we talk so much about jamie and claire but you know another relationship that we see a lot in in the later books is between roger and brie yeah and and their search for each other both in drums of autumn and then later when roger's time hopping around and brianna's you know trying to hold down the fort and find jimmy and all that kind of stuff too but yeah so the from songs the the quote is i search high and low for the one that i love and that search the search from season one is everywhere in outlander another place in song of solomon also in like second corinthians 13 when everybody knows that as the love chapter the Mm -hmm. the chapter where people quote that a lot at weddings and so forth love is kind love is gentle is not love keeps no record of wrongs that's the one that always like i i am always challenged (laughs) (laughs) well and then that's jamie looking at her going forgiven you know, yeah. it's you know, it's, yeah, it's done. Yeah. It's forgiven. It's it's done. Yeah. Love keeps no records of wrong. But in Song of Solomon, it's do not awaken love before it's time. And mm-hmm. just in in rereading last night about the the wedding and mm-hmm. Jamie taking her by the hands and saying, okay, there needs to be honesty between us. You can keep your secrets, but if we're going to say something, it needs to be the truth. Mm-hmm. And there are things mm-hmm. that I will keep from you. And he does. He keeps a secret that he has been in love with her since almost mm-hmm. the moment he saw her. The moment he sees her, he wants her more than any other woman. Mm-hmm. But then when he holds her, that when they get to Lallybrock and she cries on his shoulders, he holds her in Castle Yawk. Yeah, Castle Yawk. And he holds her and she cries and he, he falls in love with her. But mm-hmm. he won't tell her this just yet. No. Especially after no. she asks why he married her. Why would he do such a thing? So it's do not awaken love before it's time. He doesn't tell Claire until after she has chosen him over Frank, after she has chosen to tell him the truth about who she is, and until they are at Lallybrock. So love has not been forced and it hasn't been coerced. He hasn't set up some sort of expectation. If You know, like, I tell you this so that you'll tell me the whole, you know, oh my gosh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> 
did they say it? You know? <laughs> and then, what did you say in return? You know, it's kind of a, it, yeah. it, you know, you're, you feel an expectation of reciprocity or, and he didn't, he never put her in that position. Or manipulation uh, at all. No. I mean, there's no manipulating, which is, is very yeah. much in First Corinthians 13. There's no manipulation mm-hmm. there. You don't try to mm-hmm. get what you want by using love as a weapon, pulling out all the stops and making the big, huge proposal in front of 10,000 people and expecting mm-hmm. your partner to say what, mm-hmm. yes or no. There's, there's no manipulation or, or coercion. So Heather Walton talks about, too, in Song of Solomon, that the... The lovers are more than lovers, that they, you know, she talks about they, they are, they seek to be brother and sister, not in an incest way, but that they <laughs> they seek to be twins or like, you know, just one is just like the other or so similar or from the same origin, basically, is kind of what she's pointing out. And I think Jamie and Claire's similarity is 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 in that way of that their their souls know one another and they find refuge in one another that they are both individuals but they are also almost one spirit and we talk about or we use that language in a wedding ceremony a lot of the times that that you are now joined as one yeah it, it's good to understand that again this was anywhere between two to five thousand years ago we're in a different a different place, a different time, a different people, a different mm-hmm. culture. And it was not unusual for husbands and wives to call each other brother and sister. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. not unusual for lovers to do the same. In fact, in ancient Egypt, it was brothers and sisters who ruled the who ruled the throne. They mm-hmm. married each other. So it was truly incest. It was truly incestual, but they didn't consider it incest. It was yeah. part of their culture. They didn't consider it wrong, let's put it that way. But even later in Greek times, when husbands and wives wrote to each other, they, they wrote to their dear brothers, you're my yeah. dear sister. This is trying to bring that forward, that in addition to it being a passionate relationship, they also have a, a spiritual bond. Mm. That this is mm. something deeper and, and that their spiritual bond and their physical bond do go hand in hand, mm-hmm. which is very much in line with romantic theology. It's very much a part of this understanding that there is something more between us than the physical, but the physical helps us get there too. It's important. Mm. I think too, I, I mean, kind of in the context of gender, again, sort of Heather Walton's talking about kind of the gender division in Eden is challenged in Song of Solomon's. Even though Songs is, is clearly man and woman. In the Eden story, though, the man seeks out the woman, he leaves his parents and he cleaves to her. Their one fleshness is based on his mastery and the separation from his origins, she says. But in Songs, the woman seeks the man which we've already talked about. Right. And her intention is to return him to his origins rather than him leaving. She's helping him to get back. And that their their lovemaking takes place beneath the tree where the mother is conceived or where the mother conceived him, I mean. And this is clearly a new tree of life that's unguarded and full of fruit. So in talking about the, you know, the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, here, you know, you've got songs basically reversing that. Subverting it. Yeah. Okay, so we we talked about under the tree, full of fruit. And so I'm I'm thinking about this time at Preston Pans Mm -hmm. when they go Mm -hmm. and and they sneak off after Mm -hmm. the horrors of war, after she's experienced the horror and he's experienced the horror in their own arenas he in battle she in the hospital and they've just lost somebody so they go off to the woods and they and they reconnect they make love they reconnect to each other in ways that that are Mm life-giving and at the end of the chapter it says that she was content with jamie's seed and her belly jamie did some our jamie did some research (laughs) (laughs) preston pans apparently happens sometime in september but culloden doesn't happen until april april 16th and so this could not be the time that Claire gets pregnant. With Brie, yeah. With yeah, Brie, yeah. anyway. Uh, she may have been pregnant and not known it. But mm. the idea that his seed is in her beneath mm. the tree is mm. a very life-affirming, a very and life-affirming very, thing. very Song of Solomon-esque. Yes, mm. absolutely. That they make mm. love under the tree and she is now full of, full of his seed, mm. full of fruit. The other thing, too, though, that... That I think is probably important to, <laughs> to maybe note is Jamie and Claire have sex outside of the confines of the story, right? So we don't <laughs> see every time they sleep, they sleep with, you, with each other. In the same way that in Song of Solomon and, and elsewhere too is, you know, people people are getting it on and they don't necessarily have to tell us. Um, and they don't... <laughs> 
Diana doesn't have to describe every time because, uh, yeah, that's all we would probably ever read. Yes. Um, <laughs> and so I think it's actually quite interesting to think about, you know, that Brie was conceived in the midst of them probably retreating back up to Edinburgh after being turned away at Manchester. And that in the midst of probably hopelessness, in the midst of Jamie and Claire thinking they have failed in what they were felt called to do and there's Brie just sort of incubating in the background yeah that they still yeah. find each other in that way but we know mm. now that after the loss of faith that Claire because it's told from her point of view Claire does mm. recognize that he is now within her and that this yeah. might be a possibility again because it certainly wasn't with Frank mm. he has no That's seat it, but, I mean his he, he is his boys don't swim they just don't <laughs> so <laughs> He, 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 he cannot conceive. And that's an yeah. interesting that's an interesting parallel is that, you know, she she brings the fruit back with her through the stones mm-hmm. to a place that is not the Garden of Eden. To no. a place that is not paradise. No. And she in raises exile. Her, yeah, yeah, she is in exile and she raises her child in exile. Mm-hmm. The next note you made from your this really amazing article having to do with the difference between the Garden of Eden and the Garden in Songs. There are differences between the gardens as far as what rules those gardens. Desire seems to rule both gardens, but mm. in, in Eden, the desire is punished. Yeah, well, the desire for the fruit, right? Yeah, mm. well, the, yeah, desire in general. So I don't know if it's Catholic, but in catechisms, which I also had to learn at Freaky Weird School. Um, <laughs> Which is so weird. I know, right? But they kept wanting to go back to the Middle Ages. And so you can't go back to the Middle Ages without the Catholic Church. That's true. I can remember us learning about what were the sins of Eve whenever. And and Mm. Adam, they threw Adam in there just as an afterthought. What were the the sins? (laughs) What were the sins of Adam and Eve? with the fruit and the the three sins were because it's always in three you know it's three points in a poem it was the lust of the flesh the lust of the eyes and the pride of life hmm. those were the three sins that eve commits when she eats the apple she sees what do they mean by pride of life you'll see so the so the lust of the flesh <laughs> is i'm hungry look it's good to eat this is how the this is how the snake sells it it's yummy right. it's d- delicious it's good to eat the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, it'll nourish you. You mm-hmm. you know, you need to have this for, for your body. Mm-hmm. And then the pride of life, you will know what God knows. So oh. it, yes, you will know what God knows. So the, these are the three, and they kind of, you know, kind of have some shadow with the seven deadly sins. There's lust, yeah. there's lust, there's gluttony, there's, so you, and, and then you've got pride as being the worst of the sins. These things are punished in the Garden of Eden. So if you get hungry and you go to that tree for the fruit, you better not be going to Adam for any loving either because that would be a, a bit of a, a punishment there. And, and, and it's not mentioned at all. Sex is not mentioned at all prior to the fall because she, Eve does not get pregnant. It's not even really, I mean, it's mentioned as, and Adam knew Eve and they, you know, conceived a child. But it's not mentioned prior to the fall. In this garden, in this beautiful garden in which the lovers come to in the Song of Songs, it's rewarded. Mm-hmm. Your pleasure the fruit is, is to rewarded. be eaten, love yeah. is to be made, and humanity, you know, is meant to be coming together. Right? It's not prideful to be, you know, mm-hmm. proud of your body, to say, look mm-hmm. at my breasts, come and take them. You know, it's not prideful to mm-hmm. allow this to happen and to then seek the pleasure for yourself and for another. It is, mm. it is, it's, it's beautiful. And it really does in, in such a beautiful way subvert what happens in the garden. We see this a lot with Jamie and Claire. We see this desire they have for each other being rewarded and doing what they do during the war by staying together is yeah. rewarded with Brie. They get their reward by being with each other and having a marriage that either people are immensely envious of and jealous of like Tom Christie or ones that people seek for strength 
like Roger and Bree and Marceline and Fergus. They're looked to as examples because of their strong marriages. And Walton talks too about desire as being almost tidal in the sense of it has tides of fulfillment and tides of loss, which I thought was a really interesting way of thinking about it. So she writes that desire is not that which damns humanity as it did in Eden. And she says instead that it's the source of life to be celebrated, but in celebrating it, we also face and acknowledge the reality of our loss. That's a way in which she compares and contrasts the Genesis narrative with songs. And throughout the Outlander series, but, you know, especially after their reunion in Voyager, Jamie and Claire, I think... They know they have something to lose. They're very aware of that. Well, that's that loss of innocence right there. Yeah, absolutely. They're keenly aware of the specter of death. Maybe real death, but also death of things coming to an end in whatever way it be. And so the love between Claire and Jamie, I think, in the series is made stronger because of that. Because Mm -hmm. of that awareness and that knowledge. And is all the more compelling, I think. Because first, I think their desire for each other is celebrated by themselves and those who love them, which is what you just said. They're kind of held up as a model and people, you know, ask them, how do you make this work? And, and, but they know that it's precious and they make it work, you know, they work at it. Yeah. But two, the threat of separation and loss is always present because they've been there. They know what it feels like. They know the cost that it has. Yeah. And it's, it's always present. It's always sitting there kind of a, this is what life is like without him. This is what life is like without her. Well, and it makes that so much more precious, right? And that's the exchange. That's the exchange mm. when you gain knowledge at the loss of your innocence. Mm. You know, that's mm. you, you now know what it is to lose. You now know yeah. what it is to feel pain. And so yeah. prior to that, you had no knowledge, and so it's not precious. Mm-hmm. And now mm-hmm. it is. Now life is precious. When I was pregnant with my son, and we, we, we have one, we have one son, and there's a reason, I was very, very sick. We didn't mm-hmm. find out that I was sick. And if you've ever seen Downton Abbey, I had what Sybil had. And if you've seen Downton Abbey, you know Sybil doesn't make it. I did mm-hmm. because we live in the 21st century. Thank you, mm-hmm. God, that we live in the 21st century, and I had wonderful doctors. But I had toxemia and preeclampsia. And we didn't know it until it got to the point where I was in multiple organ failure. Mm. And so I almost died. My son was delivered by C-section. And suddenly the loss of my health was a huge issue. From that moment on, my emotions on that subject, there are trigger points everywhere for something like that. When I see pregnant women, when I hear about birth stories, if you lose a child, I have to take a breath. Mm. And I've learned to live with it. But... The idyllic story that women told me about them having their children and how it's depicted on television of, you know, you go through this hard labor and you sweat and you move your head back and forth and go, oh, 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 and and you suddenly have the child and everything is forgotten. Everything is beautiful and they breastfeed beautifully and that did not happen to me. And it was hard. I had a hard time breastfeeding. My child lost weight. We had to go on some bottles. I have that that loss of innocence and I can mark it down to that day when my son was born a day that Mm -hmm. was tremendously valuable to me because Mm -hmm. I gained such an amazing thing in my son but also a day where I lost something I returned to seminary the following year I had graduated seminary at that point but one of my professors asked me to come in and she did a reading every year about the woman who had the issue of blood. There's a beautiful dramatized reading, and you guys know I'm an actor, and she knew I was an actor, and so I came in and did this dramatized reading for the class on the woman with an issue of blood. I had done it at home a few times, and I was fine with it. I knew where the emotional highs and lows were, and was ready to do this in front of the crowd, and then she wanted to tape it so that she wouldn't have to use me again, and she could show it to everybody else in her other classes. And they've got this on tape, and I've seen it, and it's, it's hard for me to watch. But when I started to act, suddenly I was the woman with the issue of blood because I had almost died just six months earlier. And all the loss and all the gain and all of the pain just like rushed out of me. And I mean, I was a blubbering mess up there. And everybody in the group was like, that was so good, Terry. And I'm thinking, 
I don't You're think such a good actor. Yeah, I don't think that's what that was, guys. And I, I didn't want to say anything wow. to people because I didn't want people to freak people out by, you know, no. my my issues. But later, my the professor, her name was Gwen Hawley, and she was just brilliant. Loved her as a professor. Gwen came up to me afterwards, and she's like, Terry, there's a difference in you. You're softer now. Hmm. And I'll never, I'll never forget that, that what I gained was not just an amazing son, and he's still amazing. This is 20, yeah, almost 20 years later. And I've gained a, a, a father. My husband is now a father and a partner with me and having raised him and, and beyond. But I also gained the knowledge that it could all go away so fast. Yeah. And that it became so precious to me. And it became precious to David, too. He, We've talked about this since. We have a hard time watching things with like like when I watched Down Abbey and watched Sybil I was a mess for like days after mm. that the knowledge that it, it is it is that precious and I think the older we get and the more we go through and the more people we lose and the more opportunities that are lost and gained we grow a muscle we didn't know we had to carry yeah. that loss and so we, we grow this muscle that knows it's there and can exercise the preciousness of the moment but we also grow the muscle to bear the burden of the pain. And I, I think we see that a lot in Claire and Jamie. We do. We, we, we see Claire remembering the pain of Leary throughout and the pain of, of, of her husband not being the perfect hero that she remembered. It comes back every now and then, you know, Leary, damn her eyes. She, she's, always, you know, she's always saying that. They also make a point to stay in the moment with each other, which I think is yeah. so vital because they know it's precious. I just went on yeah. and on. I'm so sorry. No, 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 okay. no, not. Okay. no, apologize. Well, too, I mean, so when Claire loses faith, Jamie's not there. That's a hard pill to swallow. It is. Because of a, betra- a betrayal of, of what he had said he was going to do, which was not kill Blackjack. Um, right. And, and to, yeah. know, to know that standing at the stones, him telling her to go through the stones... And to know that she could lose her child, his yep. only—I mean, that's that's a—that's the moment I think. And it's really only because of twentieth-century medicine that she was able to keep her. Yeah, yeah. Brie was a problem. She did have yeah. trouble. If she had not come through the stones, she'd have lost her too, and probably her own life as well. Mm-hmm. They would have all died. So we talk about, too, the God of Eden as being this, I don't know, this setup artist that (laughs) (laughs) says, hey, I'm going to make this great garden. I'm going to put the one thing you can't have in the middle of it. I'm going to tell you about it. And then I'm going to say, uh-uh-uh. And if you touch it, you are going down. And I don't have kids, but I've had a lot of people tell me that that's the way to ensure to get kids to do something is to tell them to not do it. Of course. It's like saying, hey, don't think about a cat. Well, now you think about a cat. <laughs> so you have no choice but to think about a cat. So every time there, I can see Adam and Eve naked walking by going, there's that tree, there's that tree. <laughs> Just, should I, should I, should I? You know, and then you know, all, they, all it takes is one little snake going, hey, come on over here. Come here, come yeah. here. So it, I think that that's just, it does God such a wrong by presenting that as being, <laughs> that, that as being yeah. the narrative. Um, yeah. And I think that you get that from Walton. She she talks about this. You you made a note here. Yeah, she, okay, so she says, what if God is not that austere, repressed old man doling out his moralisms from the sky? So, yeah. you know, think kind of how God is depicted in Genesis. She asks instead, what if God is our dark goddess, passionate, destructive, a dreadful old tart who loves us because she's <laughs> got to have us? What if our relationship is obsessive and tragic and involves us in death and suffering, but is somehow redemptive in a way that is shockingly close to our physical as well as our spiritual selves? I love that so much. I love God as a dreadful old tart. (laughs) Gosh, that's fantastic. My next prayer. God, you dreadful old tart. Or an yeah. old queen, because I'm an actor. I know lots of old yeah. queens, yeah. and I yeah. just God is a dreadful old queen. God with, and drag. Oh, yeah. fantastic! I would love to. I would. I love that image, and I will carry yeah. that into my next prayer session. The idea that we are relational, that this isn't mm-hmm. just a one-way thing of God, you know, handing down the words 
that we must yeah. do, handing down the actions we must do and the words. But, but that, that God actually is changed by our love to God. God is mm-hmm. God wants us so much that God is willing to change God's self to be with us. People on the other end of this are probably screaming, God doesn't change. Omnipotent, omniscient, yeah, there's, there's um, a yeah, lot of omnipresent. Who would say that was heretical that God, the term is immutable, that yes. God is unchanging. Yeah. But it's a Greek idea. It's it, not it's not in the text. It's not at Hebrew all. at all. It's not in the text. It's not the Hebrew no. idea of God. It's very much a Greek no. idea of God. So th- I think I've talked about this in a previous episode. The idea mm-hmm. of of love Love, a definition of it would be love changes you. When you enter a love relationship with someone, when you enter a relationship with someone, when you have a child, Mm -hmm. when you um, become friends with someone, you are opening yourselves up to being changed by that person. That's what it means to love them. Yeah. Love equals transformation. Yes. And transformation for both. Not just for you, but for both. If both are in love, whatever form of love it is, then love transforms love changes so god loving us and asking for relationship with us is god puts then god in a position where god will be changed exactly and i think that that is so beautiful because we then have a responsibility in this relationship rather than just again just being handed down that if you if you follow these rules check these boxes don't eat that Mm -hmm. tree then all is well. repressed old man doling out his moralisms from the sky. Exactly. Then, you know, yeah. here's the stairs to heaven. You get to go. You get the pass. There's the pearly gates. And that's not what it's all about. It's not, it's not the end justifying the means. It's, it's a God who wants relationship. That's where I kind of fall on that issue. And I believe that God is changed by my love towards God and towards God's creation. And that, that requires me to be on my toes, like I would with my husband, and seek those times of intimacy. Yeah, and taking responsibility for, for what we do. Yeah. And, and, and in the context of, of Outlander, of kind of understanding that Jamie's love of Claire is his redemption, and that Claire's love of Jamie is hers. Yeah. Um, that they are both redeeming each other through their love of each other. They're constantly saving each other with that. But at the same time, Claire doesn't, and Jamie says this, that she doesn't necessarily save him, but it's his love of her that saves him. Yeah. Which is a really interesting thing, that it's it's not this other person doing it, but our love of that person yeah. that saves us. It's our willingness um, to change and then change another. It's our mm-hmm. willingness to, to, to be that vulnerable and tenacious. I think, I think Claire, Claire is not just yeah. vulnerable. She's got a tenacity in that love. Otherwise, she would not mm. always be searching for Jamie, always be trying to find him. Everything that she is and does really has to do with that willingness to, I am not going to let him go. Yeah, I think that's true. In songs, there's also an emphasis upon beauty that that Heather Walton talks about. And she talks about the lover's beauty in songs is established through the connection to beautiful things and only through their connection to beautiful things. And so she's saying basically that beauty is established through connections to other beautiful things. I feel like I'm being repeated here. So she says, nowhere is inner radiance or complexity of character, intelligence, or virtue implicated in their beauty. So elsewhere in the Old Testament or in the Hebrew Bible, if someone is referred to as beautiful, it's usually a heads up of watch out, something bad is about to happen, or this person is going to be a bit wily. Yeah, that there's just a something ha- about to bad about to happen. Huh, right? I never noticed but that. That's interesting. Did you not even notice that? No, I've yeah. never noticed yeah. that. Yeah. That they're they're going to be crafty, yeah. Just don't trust them. Okay. Basically, yeah. Something something's going to happen. Whereas in songs, the beauty is for beauty's sake, and she talks about that their charms are physical and likened to material things, and that that beauty is intrinsically good, as opposed to sometimes elsewhere in the in the Hebrew Bible, it's it's not. It's uh, well, yeah. A charm is deceitful, and beauty is in vain. And beauty is vain. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's back yeah. to Proverbs, yeah. And in Outlander, I think we see this. It's Jamie's beauty that's described the most often, obviously, because we're seeing it from Claire's point of view, right? Right, right. 
And still, this image of Jamie as the sun, which we have talked about before, but this this shining, resplendent example of manhood. Oh yeah, he is the king of men. Yeah, and Roger describes Claire and Bree's beauty, and Jamie occasionally remarks on Claire's beauty, I think most notably in Voyager when they reunite. He seems to talk about that a lot. And the way he describes her body, like we've said before, in Voyager and the brothel, is very songs sounding yeah peace yeah let's say but more often than not claire is described by claire herself so like her descriptions of herself hair like a bottle brush <laughs> she describes her hair in a negative sort of way so i mean just curious i mean wouldn't it be interesting i think to do a sample of the descriptions of the physical attributes given by jamie and claire toward each other and kind of compare what those look like <laughs> and then when they describe themselves jamie doesn't really describe himself very often he doesn't. Well, he doesn't know. see himself as often. The mirrors are not as prevalent. That's true. Back in the That's 18th true. century. He doesn't really see himself self as often, except maybe in a reflection in water. Particularly after he goes to Ardsmuir and then on to Hellwater, he's not really looking at himself at all. Claire no. clearly does see herself more often in the 20th century. There's mirrors everywhere. Yeah. Um, and she has to make herself presentable to go out to class, to the hospital, mm-hmm. to anything with Frank. So she she's constantly barraged with her image other people describe her roger describes her as as beautiful i've heard people talk about that in the podcast that's a little weird that roger describes claire as beautiful i never have read that that as yeah i didn't either i just remember them talking about in scotland sassanac a bit but yeah i never thought roger was sexually attracted to claire i think he just appreciated that she was a beautiful person yeah that's Um, all i i mean i I can yeah. look at somebody and say that person is beautiful without having oh, yeah. any type of sexual attraction to them. That happens often. I can say that's a good-looking man or what have mm-hmm. you. It, it doesn't. It doesn't mean that I want to date that person or want to have sex no, with them. No, or that or... you're imagining yourself with them. No, 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 no. Like I, I just, yeah. I just think he, he says, well, she's obviously she's still a very handsome woman, and she, mm-hmm. she was. So this beauty for beauty's sake, I think, is is interesting, kind of even in Roger's description of Claire in that way, that it doesn't necessarily have to mean that there's a sexual connotation to it, but just understanding beauty is beauty. Yeah. And let's mark it as such. And and it's it's important to know that Claire actually revels in Jamie's beauty. She describes him often, lots in the later books of his chest and his hair and how, you know, if he's Mm -hmm. backlit by the sun, how all of his hairs come out on his lean body and how he still is very attractive, very beautiful Mm -hmm. man, looking like a Viking. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I love that. Uh, Looking Mm -hmm. like a Viking and her daughter also looking like him. So... In relation to that, Heather Walton asks, if not for the delight in loveliness, then what is life for? Yeah, the loveliness of Jamie for Claire, I think is is certainly part of that. (laughs) I think as readers, though, Jamie is written for the reader's delight. Yeah. We are are meant to love him as Claire loves him because we see him from Claire's perspective. The delight of him as a character, I think, is, is really important. We get this from Lord John Gray. He also describes mm. Jamie's beauty. He does. He does. So uh, we, we get it twofold. Yeah. Um, yeah. Not just from Claire, but from Lord John, too. Yeah. yeah. He is not permitted to revel in it, which is what no. is so sad. He, he cannot revel in the beauty. He cannot show it to Jamie because of Jamie's scars, um, mm. internal scars, as well as physical ones. You know, the, the one time he is permitted to show it, it's with Claire, mm. <laughs> his rival. Mm. So mm. <laughs> Claire is permitted... She's allowed to be in love with Jamie and to love the way mm. he looks. And mm. and Lord John is, is not. That makes me sad. It is. I'm hoping Lord John yeah. finds someone in these last couple of books. Yeah. I put in too. my order, Diana. Please get Lord John <laughs> <laughs> to find someone he loves so that, you know, he's free of Jamie. But I, I understand mm. the bittersweet beauty of him never doing that, but still. Some, some people never do. Correct. Maybe it's worth... Yeah, worth describing. So in songs, how the woman in songs describes her lover. So it's uh, chapter 5, verse 10. My beloved is clear-skinned and ruddy, preeminent among 10,000. His head is finest gold. His locks are curled and black as a raven. His eyes are like doves by watercourses, bathed in milk, set by a brimming pool. 
His cheeks are like beds of spices, banks of perfume. His lips are like lilies, they drip flowing myrrh. His hands are rods of gold studded with beryl, his belly a tablet of ivory adorned with sapphires. His legs are like marble pillars set in the sockets of fine gold. He is majestic as Lebanon, stately as the cedars. His mouth is delicious, and all of him is delightful. Such is my beloved, such is my darling, O maidens of Jerusalem. So she's telling other women about her man. There are many times that Claire watches Jamie, particularly when he's leading people. Mm -hmm. She doesn't tell anybody. No. But she but does. She sees it. She sees it, and she and she recognizes how beautiful he is, mm-hmm. and she just kind of keeps that to herself and smiles and 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 sees how powerful he is and how handsome and how he was just born for this. I don't think this description is really any different from what we see. <laughs> it's in very life, very similar. His, oh my gosh! His hair is black. But that's about it that I'm seeing any sort of differences here. So you guys need to ring Song of Solomon's right after the, <laughs> right after the book of Ecclesiastes. Oh, that's my favorite. Ecclesiastes is my favorite. And just before the prophets, just before Isaiah. Mm-hmm. So Psalms, Proverbs, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of, Song of Solomon. Yeah, those are the the four wisdom books. Yeah. Before you get into apocryphal stuff, grab that and read it now, and and read it with someone you you love. <laughs> It might yeah. be a it might be a, a, a wonderful moment. I think that's probably a good place to end. Uh, we would love to hear your feedback and what you think about it. Have you ever read songs before? Have you ever been told not to? What other parallels do you see in Outlander? All that kind of stuff. Let us know what you think. And and um, truly, yeah, let us know too about the struggle that we have as people of faith with the culture around desire would love to know about your struggles with that about how you're dealing with it because we struggle with it too still and it's something yeah. that's always in our mind being yeah. told for years and years and years to don't 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 um within sort of purity culture and abstinence only sex education and that kind of stuff so many people really struggle with when it's okay how do you turn that off i just had a conversation with somebody about that this week it's really difficult once you get married or once you begin to believe that, you know, sex outside of a marriage is okay, to turn that inner inner voice off that's that's always saying, This is bad, this is bad. I would be really interested to kinda hear what you think. And then again, go back and read a book where it's just nothing but beauty and passion mm-hmm. and know mm-hmm. that this is also the Holy Scripture. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Cool. All right, guys. So we will talk to you See next you time. Bye. <laughs> later. Bye. That's it for this episode of Outlander Soul. Thanks for listening. We would really appreciate it if you'd review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts as it helps people to find us. If you listen and like what you hear, please consider supporting us financially. Just click the support us at outlandersoul.com. There are lots of ways to donate. Every little bit helps. Also, we'd love to hear your questions, thoughts, and ideas because part of the work that we're doing is gathering data on how fans interact with and value Outlander in their lives. So we're really interested in what you have to say. And we know Outlander fans have a lot to say. So please send us your thoughts through our website, email, voice memos, or social media, and follow the links on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. You can also contact us by email at outlandersoulpodcast at gmail.com or via our website, www.outlandersoul.com. Thanks again, everybody. We'll see you again in two weeks. See you later. See ya.